Well, good to be with you guys again this morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, just wanted to say a special welcome to you. Uh, this fall, we've been uh, studying the books of First and Second Peter, uh, which are letters uh, written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians written in the New Testament. And so we're going to be continuing on in, in our study this morning. And I just have to warn you, uh, I spent the, the week studying and praying and working, and about like 8, 8.30 last night, I kind of scrapped all my notes and started over, so buckle up, right? Uh, if anything great comes out of this morning, that's like 100% proof that was absolutely the Spirit, because it had to be, right? So um, we've been, uh, again, we've been studying the books of First and Second Peter. Last week we began the letter of Second Peter, and one of the things that was really important um, to highlight, one thing that's really important to understand is that the, the people that Peter is writing to in both the letters of First Peter and Second Peter is the same audience, this is the same group of local churches in this, in this region. But the reason that he's writing, the, the occasion for the letter, the reason he's writing the letter are different between First and Second Peter. And in First Peter, he's writing to teach them about how to live in light of opposition to the gospel from outside of the church, whether that's family or friends or government or, or their employers or whatever it is. And in Second Peter, he's writing to teach them about how to live in light of opposition to the gospel from within the church, from people that are, call themselves a part of the church. You see, what was happening is that there were false teachers who were beginning to um, influence and infiltrate this still young church with theologically and morally heretical teaching about the gospel. And so Peter, uh, and they're leading people away from the truths about Jesus and the truths about the gospel. And so Peter, we saw last week, he begins, he begins his second letter to this group of churches by reminding them about the transforming power of the gospel. And last week we saw you, you reminded them about how the gospel gives us a new identity and a new purpose. We saw the gospel gives us new desires so that we would long to live in line with that identity and that purpose that the gospel gives us. And lastly, we saw that the gospel gives, actually gives us the power to, to live that way. And one of the things that Peter made abundantly clear last week and as he opened this letter is that the way that we experience the transforming power of the gospel is singularly through the knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so Peter begins by reminding these Christians about the transforming truths about the gospel. He does it for two reasons. One, he wants them to keep growing in the gospel. The gospel isn't just the first thing that we learn as Christians. It's the thing of first importance. We're saved by faith in the gospel, but we're ongoingly changed every day by faith in the gospel. And the gospel is is the one thing that actually has the power to change us. And so Peter begins his second letter by reminding them about all the truths about the gospel that he preached to them in the first letter. But he has a second reason for reminding them about the gospel, and it's because he doesn't want them to be led astray by these false teachers who are teaching something else about who Jesus was. See, these false teachers that infiltrated this church, they were leading people away from the truths about the gospel. And in order to legitimize what they were teaching, they had to undermine what Peter had already taught. There was no way that their views were compatible in any way with what Peter had already taught about the person and work of Jesus and about his gospel. And, and so what they had to do is they had to call into question the validity of Peter's testimony about Jesus in the first place. They had to undermine uh, Peter's testimony. And they said, we'll see in chapter 3, they said things like, uh, Peter told you that Jesus was coming back. Uh, if that's true, where is he? 
We don't, we don't see him anywhere. You think you can really trust this Peter guy? And so they're insinuating and they're, they're even outright saying that Peter's words are just made-up stories. What Peter said about Jesus, who he was, and what he did, it's not the truth. You want to know why? You want to know why they say that? <laughs> it's really simple. Uh, they want to be God. We all do. We, we, all, we all want to be the ones who decide what's right and wrong. We all want to be the ones who decide what is good and best for us, what is right and what is wrong. We want to decide the, the best way that we should live. The bottom line is that if you want to believe that, you, you have to do something with Jesus. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the one who forgives sin. Jesus said, I am God. There's nobody else. And that's what Peter taught. And that's the testimony that Peter gave the rest of his life to proclaiming and to bringing to the ends of the earth. There's just one place to find salvation. There's just life found in one place. There's forgiveness found in one place. There's one King of Kings. There is one Lord of Lords. There is one God, and it's not you. It's Jesus. These false teachers had called into the question the validity of Peter's testimony about Jesus. And in our passage this morning, Peter is responding to this accusation. And he does so by laying out a reminder about who Jesus is and about why his testimony about Jesus can and should be trusted. As we study this morning, I want to highlight three reasons Peter gives us for why his testimony about Jesus can and should be trusted. One, he says, eyewitness testimony. Two, he says it's corroborated eyewitness testimony. And three, he says it is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. You see, there is only two things that we can do with the testimony about Jesus that we have recorded for us by Peter and the other apostles in the books of the New Testament. There's only two ways you can respond. You can either accept it and submit your life to the Lord of that word, or you can reject it and become the Lord of the word yourself. Some people think that there's a third option, which is you can just change what was said about Jesus. Um, But I hate to break it to you, that's the same thing as rejecting it. That's not a new idea. That's not a new plan. The people in Peter's day, they were doing that. They were just changing what, what, what people said. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of our country, famously literally used a razor and cut out all of the verses in the Bible that he didn't agree with and then turned what was left into his Bible. People still do the same thing today. I really love what Jesus teaches, but he's not God. To change what the Bible says about Jesus is the same thing as rejecting it. And so the options that are before us are either to accept what the Bible actually says about Jesus, to accept the testimony about Jesus that is recorded for us there, or to reject it. And my heart for us this morning is that as we study God's word, that, that our confidence in the trustworthiness of the testimony that we have about Jesus as recorded for us in God's word, that it would grow. And that our confidence in the word of God would lead us to increasingly seek to submit every area of our life to the authority of the king that that word reveals. I think it was Tim Keller who said it this way. He said, the word of the Lord reveals to us the Lord of the word. The word of the Lord reveals the Lord of the word. So as we begin this morning, let's pray and ask the Lord of the word to speak to us through his word this morning. God, we are so grateful for you and for your word. Thank you that 
you would you long that we would know you and god and so we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and god i just trust that i i just pray that as we study this morning our confidence in the trustworthiness of your word that it would increase god and that our lives given over to you might be more sure and confident because of that i pray these things in your good name amen amen well, let's read our passage this morning, and we'll dive in. We're in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 21. So I'll always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as, you, as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son uh, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. For we also have the, and we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, through, uh, though humans, spoke from God as, though, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter begins in verse 16 by laying out a a defense against the attacks, against the veracity of his testimony about Jesus. And the first reason he gives why his testimony about the person and the work of Jesus can and should be trusted is that it's eyewitness testimony. I love courtroom dramas. If I were a lot smarter, I'd I'd really love to be a lawyer, but let's just be honest, that's not going to happen, right? But... I, just, I love the, the details of it, and I love the thinking of it and the quick-wittedness sometimes, but one of the most significant parts of any courtroom drama is the evidence. And until, uh, until modern, the, the advent of modern forensics, there was one piece of evidence that mattered most in any courtroom, and it was eyewitness testimony. Even today, even, even after the advent of modern forensics, eyewitness testimony is still incredibly important. And in the ancient world, there was no stronger evidence than eyewitness testimony. And Peter says, the reason you can trust what I said about Jesus is because I was there. Peter knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus die. He saw the holes in Jesus' hands and his feet after he rose again. Peter was the first disciple Jesus called to follow him, and Peter was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. You see, there are only two ways you can relate to someone after you go on a three-year road trip with them. Uh, you either never want to see that person ever again, or you never want to leave their side. And if there's anybody that knew what Jesus said, it was Peter. He was an eyewitness of the words and the work of Jesus, and Peter gave his life. Peter gave his dying breath, proclaiming his love for his friend Jesus. Peter doesn't just say he was an eyewitness to Jesus. In verse 16, he says he was an eyewitness to the power and the majesty of Jesus. You see, Jesus was not just Peter's friend. Jesus was Peter's king. 
The word majesty is really important. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. And every time it's referring to the kingly rule and the authority of Jesus. And Christ is not his last name. Christ is Jesus' title. It means Jesus the King. And this, this articulation of Jesus' identity, it's in direct opposition to the false teachers that Peter is opposing. They denied Jesus' promised return. Jesus often talked about his return. And the two themes that characterize how Jesus talks about the way that he will return is that it will be, uh, that the two themes that characterize that are salvation and judgment. He was coming back to save those who were his, and he was coming back to execute final judgment against sin because he actually had the authority to do it. He's the king of everything. And so these false teachers, as they deny the return of Jesus, they're denying his kingly rule. They're denying his kingly authority. They're saying, Jesus, you're not God. What you said isn't true. So Peter probably had like a million different eyewitness stories that he could tell about Jesus to prove his point that he's an eyewitness. Like, oh, maybe the time that he... I mean, there's just like an an unending amount of stories Peter could have told. But he chooses to tell the story about the time he was an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. In verse 17 and 18, he reminds us about his eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration of Jesus. And he says it this way uh, in verses 17 and 18. He received, talking about Jesus, he received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice as it came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. You see, Jesus, uh, Peter's referring to a story that's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, but uh, most clearly in Matthew chapter 17. And what had happened is Jesus had taken Peter and James and John, his three closest disciples, up on a mountain. And there they, they see a glimpse of his, of his divine nature, his divine form. They get a glimpse of his glory. And as usual, Peter just opens his mouth and starts rambling incoherently, which I really resonate with because, you know me, I just do that sometimes, probably more often. The nod, and God the Father interrupts him, thankfully. Uh, and in verse Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, there's this booming voice that comes from heaven, and he says, this is my son, in whom, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And there's a ton that is really significant about all of that that we don't have time to get into, but what I want to highlight uh, this morning is that the, the words that the Father uses to describe who Jesus is. This is my Son, in whom, I'm, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. That is combining these two Old Testament references in Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 42, which are messianic prophecies. They're prophecies in the Old Testament which are foreshadowing the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. And they're combined and they're used to describe Jesus. And so God the Father is saying, this is the Messiah. And those two passages, they talk about the Messiah as a servant And they talk about the Messiah as a king. Why do you think Peter, why do you think Jesus gave Peter this experience? Why do you think God gave Peter and James and John a glimpse of Jesus' glory and of his kingly rule and his kingly reign? I can tell you what Peter took away from it. Peter took it as a promise of the future. He took it as a glimpse of what was actually going to come, that one day Jesus was going to rule in, in, he was going to rule and reign in that form. So one commentator writes, Peter presents the transfiguration with its revelation of Christ's kingship as the guarantee of the final event, the former event anticipated and guaranteed the latter. And so Peter says, you want to know why I taught you that Jesus was coming back? You want to know why I taught you 
that our hope is in him? You want to know why I taught you that to look for his return is life and to miss it is death? You know why I taught you that? It's because that's what God said. And it's what I saw. I'm an eyewitness. It's my testimony about that. But Peter doesn't use the word I. He uses the word we. And brings us to our second point. Second reason Peter says his testimony about Jesus can and should be trusted. It's not just eyewitness testimony. It is corroborated eyewitness testimony. The testimony of one dude, eh, you know, you might be telling the truth, you might not. But the consistent testimony about Jesus from many, and that is virtually undeniable. Peter was, there, there's either some serious hallucinogenic drugs going around, or people actually believed it was true. See, Peter was not the only eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. That night on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was uh, James and John. Guess what? Their testimony, as we have recorded for us in the books of the Bible that they wrote, the, gospel, or the book of James, the Gospel of John, or John's letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or the book of Revelation, they, they tell a consistent story about who Jesus was and what he did and, and the kingly rule and reign of Jesus. But let's just take it one step further. Let's examine the rest of the New Testament. Every one of the books of the New Testament was written by an eyewitness to Jesus or by using the eyewitness accounts of Jesus as its primary source. And all of them were written during the lifetime of people who were alive when Jesus was alive. All of them are written before AD 100 during the lifespan of the people who would have been actually been around when Jesus was there. Matthew He was one of the 12 disciples, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was a disciple of Peter, and he used Peter, who's writing these letters of the Bible, he used Peter's accounts as his source material as he wrote the Gospel of Mark. Luke and Acts, written by uh, the doctor Luke, literally got commissioned by a guy named Theophilus to go around and collect eyewitness testimony about Jesus and write it down. And just as Luke was not an intern on a busy work mission, Luke was a like a brilliant doctor, and Luke was also, the the language that was written in the book of Luke, Luke was really smart, like next level smart kind of guy. Apostle Paul wrote basically half the New Testament. He spent his life trying to kill Jesus because he hated what Jesus said so much until Jesus literally blinds him with his glory, and uh, the person Saul who opposed Jesus becomes Paul, the great, one of the greatest evangelists for Jesus in the history of the world. James and Jude were literally Jesus's half-brothers. If your brothers worship you as God even after your death, that is like some incredible domination, or it's really powerful evidence. <laughs> Hebrews is the only book of the New Testament that we don't know exactly who wrote it, But what we know is that it was written during the time of the eyewitness's life and that it was accepted by the early church, which says a lot because the early church, their number one criteria for listening to a letter was, was it written by an apostle? And if it wasn't, they pretty much just ignored it. You see, the eyewitness testimony about Jesus that comes from all of these men, it's the same. Jesus was God. He was the Messiah. He alone is the Savior. He is coming back. There is this incredible consistency on who Jesus was and what he said. And some people say, well, uh, there's this incredible consistency to the testimony about Jesus, but that's just because there was this kind of giant organized conspiracy by the church to kind of cover up any dissenting opinions. That view is popularized by the Da Vinci Code books and Tom Hanks. He's just a trustworthy guy, you know. Um, 
And while we don't have time to get into the innumerable ways that that line of thinking is totally nonsense, I'll just say this. In order to have a conspiracy that effective and that far-reaching, which crossed the vastness of the Roman Empire without the internet, while the government was trying to hunt down Christians and kill everybody, is not just like unsound thinking. Like, that's just dumb. There's no way that happened. The early church was way too busy trying not to get killed to spend time orchestrating an incredibly elaborate cover-up of false teaching. Like, it's just not, it doesn't make any sense. And so the accusation leveled against Peter by these false teachers is, is, that, is that Peter's stories about Jesus are simply that. They're just stories. They're just cleverly devised myths. They're just sophisticated myths. And Peter and the other apostles, they were just smooth talkers who wove this intricate web of lies, and you can't trust them. But church history would seem to lead us in a different direction. Because church history pretty clearly records that all of these men, they gave their lives as martyrs' deaths for refusing to recant from their testimony about Jesus. There's nothing for them to gain. They didn't like get some huge amount of money for telling people about Jesus. They didn't get some cushy life. They didn't get fame. They got aided. They did it because it was the truth. It was the truth that had radically changed everything about who they were. You see, a lot of religions begin with the self-validated smooth talking of one man. The cult of Mormonism traces its roots back to a guy named Joseph Smith who said that he, had, uh, he, he was visited by the angel Gabriel and had special visions that revealed the, the truth about what was going on. Islam is founded singularly on the testimony of a guy named Muhammad who claimed that he was given multiple revelations by the angel Gabriel, and these revelations supersede the Bible and they make it invalid. So many religions are founded on what one person said. God told me this. So it's true. But the New Testament, the witness about Jesus, what Jesus claimed to be God and what he said, what he proved, the New Testament is the corroborated eyewitness testimony by many men and women who knew Jesus in life, who watched him die and who saw him risen and who gave their dying breasts to tell other people about this man who proved that he was God. But their testimony isn't the only thing that we have about Jesus. Verse 19, Peter goes on to highlight the third reason why the, uh, the apostles' testimony about Jesus can and should be trusted. He says, it is the clear fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's the Old Testament's testimony about Jesus. Verse 19, we also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you'll do well to pay attention to it. I spent the whole summer looking at the Old Testament, and my goal was to show you how it all pointed towards Jesus one of the many ways we saw how the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus was through direct prophecy about the Messiah, about the one who was coming to save. Jesus fulfills more than 60 specific Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. I know that a bunch of you are engineers and you like numbers, so Merry Christmas. I got some numbers for you, okay? There's a really smart uh, math professor named uh, Peter Stoner. And he gave 600 students a math probability problem that would determine the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies about Jesus. Uh, those, just those eight of those prophecies about the Messiah. And so what they did is they first, using, uh, using 
affirmed mathematical methods. They, they calculated the odds of just one person fulfilling all the conditions of just one of those specific prophecies, such as being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver or being born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. I mean, that limits the results pretty quickly, but they, they calculated that the odds of one person fulfilling all eight prophecies were astronomical, one to 10 to the 21st power. To illustrate this, Dr. Stoner gave this example. He said, first, blanket the earth's landmass with silver dollars, 120 feet high. Second, mark one of those dollars and randomly bury it. Third, ask a person to travel the earth and select that marked dollar while blindfolded from the trillions of dollars if they find it that's the likelihood if that sounds crazy remember taking into account that that's just eight of the more than 60 prophecies that jesus fulfilled the odds against one person fulfilling that are beyond the calculations of mathematics it could never happen no matter how much time was allotted and peter says jesus fulfills all of them every one. And what's more, he adds in verse 20 through 21. Above all, you have to understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. No prophecy had its origin in the human will, but prophets through, though humans spoke from God. He's saying the prophets didn't just wake up one morning and think, you know what? I'm going to prophesy today. It'll be fun. It's a Tuesday. No, God told them what to write. And Peter says that the proof that it's God's words and not just some random dude's like hallucinogenic dream is that they're fulfilled, and they're fulfilled by Jesus. They were written, these 60-plus prophecies were written by different men from different countries in different centuries, long before Jesus was born. There was no opportunity for them to collude amongst themselves to try to come up with some consistent thing to make it happen. Peter's saying, the Jesus we told you about, the gospel that I and the other apostles proclaimed to you, it's true. We were eyewitnesses. It's true. It's in perfect line with all that the Old Testament prophesied. It is completely reliable. Look for yourselves. Jesus is God. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who lives. He's the one who's coming again. It's true. We didn't make it up. Couldn't make it up if we wanted to. Which brings us to our end of our time this morning. In the beginning, I said that there's two ways that we can respond to the testimony about Jesus, and one is you can accept it. You can believe all that is written about Jesus in the Bible is trustworthy and reliable and true. It's corroborated eyewitness testimony. It is the fulfillment of centuries of prophecy. Jesus really is God. He really did come just as the Old Testament said he would as the servant king. It's he who his word reveals. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and if that is true, then he is worth giving everything to. And so you can give your life to him, the Lord of the word. And like verse 20 says, you live waiting for the rising of Jesus, the morning star. Knowing that what you believe to be true, what is promised, will actually one day be actuality. Not just because you want it to be true, but because the one who promised, the one who promised he was coming back always keeps his promises. Or you can reject it. You can accept the testimony about Jesus or you can reject it. And you can try to change it to fit what you think or what makes you feel good, but it doesn't work. It simply can't. Jesus cannot just be a good moral teacher. Good moral teachers don't claim to be God. Good moral teachers don't claim to forgive sin. Good moral teachers do not ask people to die for them. That's crazy people that do that. Or the king of the universe. That's the options. 
So you can reject it, you can change it, or you can just ignore it, but in either case, what you've said is the same thing. I reject the eyewitness testimony that these authors wrote about Jesus. I reject what they said about who he is. I just wanna just I just wanna be honest, man. I am so thankful. And there are, I know there are a number of you who are here who are, have been investigating who Jesus is and what you think about the Bible. And I'm so grateful that that like that you would let me be a part of that journey with you. I'm so thankful. I mean, my heart has been to show that to you. But I just need to shoot straight with you. If, if you come to the conclusion that the Bible that we read and base our lives on, the one I preach from every week, isn't all true. And I like the Apostle Paul says, you should pity us because we are fools. And but what I long for, that you'd see that God's word is not just some sophisticated story. It's not just a pile of myths that someone made up. It's the eyewitness testimony of people who gave their lives because it was true. Now you might see and believe the good news about the gospel that's proclaimed in this book as the one place that you find salvation, the one place you find the salvation you so desperately need and so absolutely do not deserve, but have so been abundantly offered. So the question for all of us is how will we respond? If Jesus really is the Lord of the word, then we need to submit all of our lives under his authority as he reveals himself in his word. Jesus has revealed himself to us in his word. Come to him that you might have life. He's what you need. For those of us who have put our hope and our trust and our life and our joy in the truth of these words, in the truth of this testimony about the person and the work of Jesus and his gospel, and like Peter says, we've got to remember that every day. So the apostle Peter considered to be of utmost importance in verses 13 through 15 in our passage this morning. He says, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to make every effort to proclaim this message to you so that when I'm God, so that when I'm gone, this is the thing you remember. It's my first priority whenever I preach to you. It was Peter's first priority whenever he preached to them. If I ever preach a sermon and I don't get to Jesus in the gospel, like you have my permission to just lovingly punch me in the face and tell me to stop wasting your time trying to teach you the Bible without getting to Jesus. Because that, that is pointless. If we don't get to him, we don't get anything. And so we remember the gospel, which is of first importance on the day we choose to follow Jesus and every single day after that. See, the gospel is not the first thing we learn. It is the thing of first importance. So we remind ourselves about the gospel every week because we so often forget. We forget how much we need Jesus. We forget how greatly he's met our need. And so we get led astray and we think other things will fulfill and satisfy and we run after other stuff other than him. And so what we need to do is we need to choose to remember. And so when we take communion, we're remembering the gospel, remembering Jesus's body, which was broken for us as he lived the life that we were supposed to live but never could. And we remember Jesus's blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that we deserved to die, but he did it in our place. Communion does not make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not change your status or your standing with God. And so communion is a chance for us to remember Jesus and to remember the good news about the gospel. Remember that Jesus lived for you. His death died for you so that you and I might live for him. 
the bread and the juice that are in the back. You can take the bread and dip it in the juice as, as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song. If you put your trust in Jesus, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But I just need to say this. If Jesus is not yet your king, I would just encourage you to hold off. Because what we're remembering is Jesus, our king. That's what communion is about. Remember him. And remember that we've devoted our lives to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for your word, and we are so thankful for the testimony about you that is recorded for us here. God, I pray that uh, just by your spirit that you give us the ability to put our faith and our trust in what is said about you here. God, your word is trustworthy, it is reliable, it's true. God, and you are the Lord that your word reveals. God, we just long that you would be filling us with a confidence in who you are and all that you've done to, as you were revealed in your word and that it would cause us every day to submit all of our lives increasingly ongoing over to you and to your good kingly rule and to your authority. God, we know that's for our good. Most of all, we know it's for your glory. God, cause us to be a people who lives for you. 